0: Today I'm going to begin a new series but I'm calling this series, The Case for Grace. I have been praying about this series for a few weeks now, and I have asked the sweet Holy Spirit in the sincerest way I know how to help me to articulate and to accentuate the simplest of truths concerning the gospel of grace, so that when we encounter the religious, the cat doesn't get our tongue, and that we don't succumb to timidity, but rather we are bold and courageous and fearless. We are convincing in the message that we portray, but moreover that we are well equipped to defend our position regarding the finished work of Jesus Christ. How do we defend the gospel? Does it need to be defended? How do we defend the gospel? Well, it begins by sanctifying the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts. In other words, he must become the centerpiece. We can add nothing to his finished work for salvation. And we must always be prepared to give an account, the scriptures tell us, for the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect. And we must always... Keep a good conscience. That means we have a good opinion of ourselves. We think about ourselves the way God thinks about ourselves, which is a very, very high opinion. I believe when those things come into your reality, that you have set him apart. Set him apart from what? Literally everything. That he is the absolute centerpiece of your life. You have sanctified the Lord Jesus Christ, you have set him apart in your heart as Lord. I think that's really where it begins. Sometimes Jesus is just one of many passions we have in life. And I get all the different things we can be passionate about. But friends, there's nothing in life I'm more passionate about than Jesus. I love him with all my heart. So it begins there by sanctifying Him as Lord. And when it says to always be ready, some versions say, to give an answer or to give an account, and preparation means you're taking time, you're spending time, you're meditating on God's word, you're thinking about the things he said, you're breaking apart his word like breaking bread, you're meditating on God's word. And what happens is whatever you swallow, swallows you. You know that, don't you? Whatever you eat, eats you. Come on. It happens that way. And so as we begin to take in the good pictures, the goodness of God, the graces of God, the mercies of God, the love of God, the unconditional love of God, all of that begins to work to change us from the inside out. And that's part of the preparation. I'm not talking about becoming religious here, folks. I'm talking about having a field day with God going on a field trip with him, spending time with him, and allowing him to speak into your heart. Those words will mean something to you. And then responding as we encounter people with gentleness and respect, and always be mindful of his good opinion toward us. That's what creates this good conscience inside of us. And it begins with Not having a servant attitude, but having a son and a daughter framework in your mind that I am a son who serves, not a servant. And the church has taught that for so long. With those thoughts in mind, I want to minister through the very first message of this series, a message I'm calling The Marginalized Gospel of Grace. The word marginalized means to treat a person, or it can be a group of people. It can be something as simple as an object. It can be an idea, but it means to treat something or someone less significant or peripheral. And so when we treat something or we marginalize something, we treat it as less important, less significant. In the sports world, less gifted players are sidelined. In other words, they are marginalized. In football, the roster consists of 53 players. You cannot have 54 or 55 players on the team. They cap it at 53. But at the same time, only 11 of those players are allowed on the field at one time. The other 42 are marginalized. They are there for when you need them, but how many of you know that we pay a lot less attention to the ones on the sideline? the ones that have been marginalized. Our focus is on the ones that are on the field. Those are the ones that have got our attention. They are featuring, they are showcasing the very best. And what I have found and discovered over the years is that grace is no exception to the rule. The church has marginalized the gospel of grace as well. Many treat grace like Christmas decorations. They bring them out for a certain season. And then they slip them back into their containers and they marginalize them for the lion's share portion of the year. They are just kind of filed away somewhere in storage containers. Friends, grace is not only the way to life, but grace is the way through life. We need grace for every moment of life. We need grace for every minute of life. And this is the message that I believe that the church is awakening to. There is an awakening going on right now it's a slow drip, as I've always said, but I believe the church is awakening to this true gospel of grace. I really do. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 from the New American Standard Bible, we find these words. It says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. But with gentleness and respect. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now, Peter begins by saying, but sanctify. Again, that is set apart Christ. Set apart Christ from everything, he says, as Lord in your hearts. And he says, always be ready. Always be ready to give a defense. I want you to see what the word defense means. It comes from the Greek words pros apologia. It means a verbal speech. It means to be able to give a coherent statement. Sometimes I'm asked about the hope that is within me. And it's even hard for me to be able to find some sort of starting point. Because I know I only have 60 seconds to fit it in. And how do you fit the goodness of God, the grace of God, in such a short statement? But the Apostle Peter here is saying, just be ready to give a coherent statement. Not some long, drawn-out statement, but just make it coherent. Make it understandable. Not an argument, not an apology, a coherent statement. And who do we make this coherent statement to? He says to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. But he says, you got to do this with gentleness and respect. In other words, we don't look down our nose at people who believe differently than we do. That's not gentleness and that's not respect. But we stand and we defend our position in Christ at the very same time. So there's a balancing act going on here, isn't there? He says, I want you to do this, and he says, with gentleness and respect, and he says, I want you to keep a good conscience. Friends, a bad conscience is the thief of gentleness and respect. If you have a bad opinion of yourself, I guarantee you, you will not be able to walk in gentleness and respect. It's going to spill out. It's going to come out of you. So this gospel of grace is about changing me first. We get in too much of a hurry to change others, but yet it's really about changing me. And so when you find that your response is more gentle and more respectful, then you know that grace is really beginning to work deeply into your soul. He says to do this with gentleness and respect. And he says, and keep a good conscience. What does that mean? Keep a good conscience. The prefix con means with, and science means knowledge. Conscience, with knowledge. With knowledge of what? With the knowledge of knowing that you are made in the likeness and image of God. With the knowledge of knowing that you are a son, you are a daughter of the Most High King. With the knowledge of knowing nothing can separate you from His love. With the knowledge of knowing I'm always His. If you don't have that opinion, if you don't have that reality working in your life, gentleness and respect are going to suffer in that area. Because when we set apart Christ as Lord, He is the centerpiece of everything. And then we begin to take in the Lord Jesus Christ as He begins to transform and shape the way we see Him, then our responses are going to be with gentleness and respect. But we have to have that good conscience working at the same time of who I am in Christ Jesus. We must remember that our identity is in Christ, and that's where our hope is found in Him. He says, so that in the thing which you are slandered. Come on, can I just see your hand if you've ever been slandered in life? Come on, just be honest with me. Oh, I didn't even look. They're all up, aren't they? You've been slandered before. Those who disparage your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame, it says. Now, no one goes through life without falling down. You want me to prove that? I want you to raise your hand if you've never fallen down one time in your life. (laughs) That figures, Jim. Only you, huh? Friends, please make note that we had one person in the congregation... That says, "You've never fallen down. No one goes through life without being cut. Every person in here has seen their own blood. No one goes through life. You might get through life without stitches, but you will not get through life without getting cut. No one goes through life without getting sick. Every single person here has had their head in a bucket or a toilet at one time or another. Nobody goes through life. Without getting sick. I didn't mean to even say that. It just came out. I'm sorry. Am I right? All right. No hands are up, right? (laughs) And no one goes through life. Here, friends, now listen. No one goes through life without being slandered or belittled or disparaged. It's impossible, especially if you're a Christian. I had a person one time persecute me, disparage me belittled me ridiculed me slandered me and the only reason i found out about it is because the person she told happened to be a friend of mine and she came back and told me that one lady said i don't like mark and my friend said well why is that she said he's just too happy all the time (laughs) yeah he's too happy all the time there must be something wrong here nobody's that happy (laughs) And when my friend told me that, I mean, I was like a deer in headlights. I'm like, really? You guys just had that conversation? And someone disparaged me? Someone slandered me because I'm too happy? That's what I'm saying. Nobody gets through life without being slandered. It's impossible, especially if you're a Christian. Did you know that Christianity is the most persecuted faith in the world? Not even just one religion against another religion. There's division even within the body of Christ. One says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos. There are several religions that declare that they are the only way to God. That is the first sign of a cult religion, friends. Jesus is the way to God. They say they're the only way to God. Every other religion cannot find their way to God. If I were to name off a half a dozen religions, you'd recognize every single one of those religions. But it's not the road I want to go down right now. Many denominations tell their followers that God's love is conditional and that believers can walk away from the Father's love and ultimately be lost. Have you ever heard that before? Sure you have. I've said that in times past to people. If I'm standing on the south end of the block and I swallow a marble and I walk to the north end of the block, where's the marble? It's on the north end of the block, isn't it? I couldn't walk away from the marble, could I? It's with me. Friends, we can walk away from the schoolmaster And we can walk away from the taskmaster, but we cannot walk away from the master builder. And that master builder is Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 through 27, I absolutely never tire of these scriptures. They just remind me, they just shout new covenant so much. The Apostle Paul wrote these words. He says, is the law then against the promises of God? Good question. Is the law against the promises of God? Seems like a trick question. Well, who's the one who gave the law? Well, it came by God through Moses. So is the law against the promises of God? Well, that would put God in a tug of war with himself. You see, we're not under the law. We are dead to the law. Get that in your hearts this morning. It's not an issue. It's not an issue we should be thinking about. We are dead to the law. If we were to hold my funeral today right here, I wouldn't have the faintest idea who came. I wouldn't know what you said when you walked up and touched my body. I wouldn't know. I'd be oblivious to it. Friends, we are dead to the law. You've got to get that working in the centerpiece of your heart with Christ that you've sanctified and set apart, set that knowledge, set that word aside with that, that we are dead to the law. You say, is that in the Bible? Of course it's in the Bible. I wouldn't say it. It's in the Bible. We are no longer under the law. We are dead to the law. We are free from the law. Christ is to the end of the law for righteousness sake, Okay we are dead to the law. It's true. Is the law then against the promises of God? And the apostle Paul says, God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. That makes sense. But the scripture hath concluded. <laughs> I like that word, concluded. It finalized. We've weighed all the evidence. We've taken everything into consideration. We've reached a conclusion. And here it says, the scripture hath concluded. Not my opinion, not my thoughts. The scriptures have told us this. The scriptures have concluded, all under sin, true, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Now, watch these next scriptures, friends. Please underscore these in your heart. Wherefore, the law, come on, was our schoolmaster. The law was our schoolmaster, to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified. That means declared righteous, declared innocent, absolutely not guilty whatsoever, made right in God's eyes. That's justified. Decaio is the Greek word. Decaio. That we might be justified what? By the law? No. What does it say? Justified by faith. But after that faith is come, look at these words now, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. What is the schoolmaster in these scriptures? The law. How do you know that? It says the law was our schoolmaster in the previous verses. The law was our schoolmaster. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster for ye are all the children of God by faith. Thank you, Jesus. By faith in Christ Jesus, you've made it so simple because every man, every woman, boy and girl has faith. You've given us what we need to come into a relationship with you. It's Jesus' faith. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, there you go, have put on Christ. It's like swallowing the marble. Now wherever we go, Christ goes with us, right? We can't take him off. We put him on. Friends, the Father's love is not conditional. And wherever you walk, he walks with you because we have put on Christ. Have you ever heard someone say something like this? Well, he was a Christian, doing good at one time, very involved in the church, but then he walked away from God. You ever heard anybody say that? Yeah. Whenever a person walks away, they are actually walking away from the institution or maybe even the constitution, but they can never walk away from the substitution. And that substitution is Christ. You can't walk away from the substitution. He is the one who exchanged his blood, his precious, spotless, stainless blood for our sins. The enemy cannot do away with the gospel of grace. Therefore, his favorite tool is to marginalize the gospel of grace. Let's set grace on the sideline. Let's bench grace. Let's treat grace as less important than the law, less important than our own performance. Let's put grace in a storage container, you know, and bring it out on those special occasions, you know, only when it's necessary. Friends, I have a newsflash for you this morning. We are the storage containers. (laughs) We are the storage containers. And whether you put us away or put us out, it doesn't matter. We always remain the storage container because we have put on Christ. We need Christ, we need His grace for daily living. And somehow the church over the years reduced it down to just when you come to Christ, you need grace. And maybe you say grace at a meal and you need grace when you've fallen into sin. But no, we need grace every moment, every minute of every day. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we find these words. I love these words too. And that's why you hear him a lot around here. Look what it says here. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Come on. The invitation was sent to everybody. Then it says, it teaches. What's the it part? It's the grace. It just got through saying, for the grace of God has appeared. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age, godly lives, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, look at these words, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. If you take pure gold and you bury it in the ground for a thousand years, I guarantee when you dig it up, it will still be pure gold, won't it? (laughs) Nothing changes its constitution, and nothing changes yours. You are pure in his sight. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying he purified for himself a people. Who's that people? That's you! That's you! That's you too! That's even Jim. Praise God. Hallelujah. Doesn't have to worry about getting left now in the rapture, okay? Amen. Eager to do what is good. So I've got a couple of questions that develop in my mind. How do we boldly convince others that the law is no longer our schoolmaster and that grace is our teacher? Because according to those scriptures, it said that it was grace that was the one that was teaching us. Grace is the one who teaches you not to do the ungodly. Grace is the one who teaches you how to live self-controlled, godly lives, upright lives. It's grace that teaches us. I don't need the law to teach me. I have grace far superior than the law. How do we best exemplify That grace is the one that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. How do we best demonstrate to the world that it's grace that teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age? How do we move grace from the peripheral to the centerpiece? How do we do that? Good question, isn't it? Because the church sure has marginalized grace. Put it out there for special occasions. Oh, brother so and so fell last week. We need to go show him some grace. No, you should have been showing him grace all along, and maybe brother so and so wouldn't have fallen. The church has seen enough of being put under the law, friends. It's grace. So we're in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. So I've asked those questions. Let's stay in context here. Let's back up a little bit. Titus chapter 2. Let's look at verses 1 and 8. You, however, must tell everyone how to live in a way that agrees with true teaching. There you go. With true teaching. If you teach someone in an erroneous way, they're going to live it out that way. you got to teach them true teaching. What's true teaching? To live in faith, to live by love, to live by grace, to live in patience. That's true teaching. And then look at verse 8. Look at it right there. It says, speak an accurate message that cannot be condemned. Boy, that's a mouthful. Speak an accurate message. Speak the truth. Tell the truth. Speak an accurate message. That's what we do here Speak an accurate message that cannot be condemned, then those who oppose us will be ashamed because they cannot say anything bad about us. That's exactly the same thing Peter was saying over there in First Peter, chapter three, verses 15 and 16. He said the same thing: that those who slander you and accuse you will be the ones that will be ashamed. In religion's toolbox, you'll find slander and belittling. Slander hurts regardless of whether it's true or not. Is that true? (laughs) I don't like it either. It wouldn't matter if you were pushed into a swimming pool by somebody or, or you jumped in by yourself, you'd get just as wet, wouldn't you? Slander hurts regardless if it's true or not. When a bee stings a man, it feels exactly the same way whether the man elicited the sting or not. doesn't matter. It feels the same way. It burns. It's hot. It's irritating. When slandered, a person's emotions can become very inflamed. This is when many believers have a tendency to forget the foundation of their defense, which is to respond in faith, in love, and in patience. This is when many believers forsake the gentleness and respect response gentleness and respect, remove the stinger from the bee. And without a stinger, you know what it is? It's just another harmless insect. That's all it is. We are to keep a good conscience of who we really are in Christ Jesus and pay no attention at all to the names and the labels that the enemy or even someone else is trying to pin on our chest. Don't pay attention to that stuff. Know who you are in Christ so that when a name, a label comes against you, you can just reject it and say, that is not who I am in Christ. And do it with gentleness and respect to the person, but that's not who I am. The enemy loves to call us names, loves to disparage us, loves to beat us up with name, name calling. I was called names from the time I was a little guy, all through school. I fought my way through school, always at the bus stop, in school, bullies picked on me, calling me names. When I was in school, I looked like that little boy on the cover of Mad Magazine. I'm not kidding you. Somebody actually told me that one time. That little homely little boy on cover of Mad Magazine, face that only a mama could love. That was me, man. That was me. I looked just like that little guy. Big old rooster tail right here, colicky head, parted down the middle like alfalfa. That looked like me on that cover right there. And one time I was swimming at a swimming pool and these two kids were laughing at me and they said, do you know who you look like? And I said, who? You look like that little boy on the cover of Mad Magazine. And I'll tell you what, that scarred me for a long time because I knew who they were talking about. The enemy loves to call us names. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me or kill me or whatever. That is a lie. Names can destroy people. But when you have a proper identity, when you have a good opinion of who you are in Christ, I'm telling you, you default to that. He's the centerpiece. If I get my eyes off the centerpiece and I start looking to the peripheral, then those names are going to bother me. But as I keep my eyes on Christ and he says, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I love you. In you, I find no flaw. You are perfect in my eyes. That's the message I need to hear. That's the message the body of Christ needs to hear. When slandered, like I said, a person's emotions can get inflamed and we have this tendency to forget the very foundation of our defense, which is to respond in faith, love, and patience. And this is when many people just lose their little doggy brain. Over the last 10 years or so, I have been slandered and disparaged for preaching this beautiful, (laughs) all-encompassing, awe inspiring exhilarating, illuminating and liberating gospel of grace in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I've had to endure some name calling and some labeling. I've been called a heretic and a false teacher. I was told by a man one time that I was leading people straight to hell and that I was going to have to stand before God on judgment day. And on that judgment day, I was going to have to give an account to God for every word I'd ever spoken in everybody's heart and for leading people astray with false doctrine is what he said. He said, I'm very concerned about you. And I thought, well, I'm not. Now I want to ask you a question. Would you like to know what it is that triggers people to call me names, call you names, put labels on us? Would you like to know what that is? (laughs) It happens to me because I will not quit preaching the unconditional love of God and because I will not quit preaching once his, always his. That's what does it. (laughs) Those two things infuriate people. They lose their minds. Gentleness and respect. Honor. Keeping Christ as a centerpiece so I don't lose my mind in those situations as well. Now, if what I preach is merely conjecture, then I understand that man's point. But what I preach comes from the Word. It's the centerpiece of the new covenant of grace. It's Jesus plus nothing for salvation. It's Christmas decorations all year long. You ever been at somebody's house like that? They never take the Christmas tree down. You ever see anybody like that? I've known people like that, you guys. Jim again. Okay. Never falls down, never takes Christmas tree down. Okay, we see the motif here. Nothing's coming down, right? Okay, I got it. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> it's because I won't quit preaching the unconditional love of God and because I won't quit preaching once His, always His. Amen, amen. It's Christmas decorations all year long, it's the substitution and not the institution it's the putting on of Christ did you know that he was wash and wear (laughs) yeah he (laughs) washes us of our sins and then we wear the robe of righteousness and that is Christ Christ is our robe of righteousness oh you didn't know that did you The next time you look at your care label and your instruction label on your garment, I want you to remember that. I wish our clothes were like that. Don't you just wash them and wear them. I got to iron everything nowadays, it seems like. (laughs) (laughs) When we turn off a faucet, the water immediately ceases to flow. And I could turn off the slander. And I could turn off all the disparaging comments if I just quit preaching the true gospel. And if I just simply marginalized the finished work of Christ, I could turn most of that off. But it's too late. It's too late because my hope is rooted in a good conscience of the Father and a good conscience of myself in Christ And it's out of that good conscience I respond with grace and truth. Friends, the cat never gets my tongue and my boldness never runs dry. I sanctify Christ as Lord in my heart. I sanctify Christ as my substitution. And I am always ready to give an answer. I'm always ready to give an account. I'm always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks me about the hope that is within me. Amen. Who are the people that say such things about you, Pastor Mark, you ask? Who are those folks? <laughs> These slandering and disparaging names and labels must have come from the atheists, right? No, 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 it wasn't the atheists. Well, then it must have come from the agnostics. No, no, it wasn't the agnostics. It must have been those deplorables. No, friends, wasn't the deplorables. These names and labels, all this fear-mongering tactics that were used, and all these slanderings came from believers in Christ. I'm talking about people who love God with all their heart. I'm talking about people that would be burned at the stake for the cause of Christ. I'm talking about people who love Christ. They love people, but they have been convinced by the church because they've been raised up under an old covenant mindset. That it is their Christian duty, it's their Christian responsibility to warn others of pending doom. Now folks, I'm saying this, I was there at one time. I would yank the slack out of you in the gentlest way I knew how in a minute. And I genuinely cared about you. I cared about you, I loved you, but because I thought you could undo everything that God gave you, it was always my responsibility. I felt obligated and I always hated doing it too. You know what my response is today when I'm disparaged and slandered? It is, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are saying. When reproached, I make no excuses, and I give no apologies for ministering the truth. That's one thing I've learned over the years. You never have to apologize for the truth. Now, you need to speak the truth in love. And if you don't do it in love, then maybe you do owe an apology. But I'm talking about when you speak the truth in love, you never have to apologize. Did you ever see Jesus say, I'm sorry? <laughs> you never heard those words from Jesus. And he offended a lot of people, especially the religious people, didn't he? I have refused to marginalize the gospel of grace. And I have continued to defend the finished work of Jesus Christ with gentleness and respect sanctifying Christ as Lord in my heart. Now, as much as you and I are convinced that Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice was sufficient payment to cleanse us of all of our sins, once for all, and as much as you and I are convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, I think we'd all agree that that there still remains a significant challenge to convince others of these foundational truths. How do we convince others of this? We know this for sure in our heart. That's why we sanctify, we put on Christ, we set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, as the centerpiece of everything, so that when the time comes, And it comes sometimes when you least expect it, that suddenly you have to give an answer. I have been standing in line in an airport, people in front of me waiting to go through security, people behind me, people in front of me, and I have ministered the gospel to the men on both sides of me. Always ready to give an answer. Always ready to defend the gospel. Always ready to make a defense in the case for grace. But we must always give an account for the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect. It's an inside job. I can't speak for you, so I'll speak for me. But even the very thought of marginalizing the gospel of grace is nauseating. It's upsetting. It's hurtful to me. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine Hiding that, putting it out there like it's not that important. No, it's the centerpiece of everything I live for. Christ and His gospel of grace. Grace and truth came through Christ. There's a reason that Jesus hung between two criminals, He was the centerpiece, even on the cross. Every man. Every woman, every boy, every girl that has ever become a believer in Christ was saved by grace through faith. No one came in another way. In fact, Jesus would say, if you try to climb up another way, He said, I've got a label for you. You're a thief and a robber. You have to come by grace through faith. There's no other way. Every believer that I've ever met will agree that grace is the way to life. I've not met anybody that, not a Christian anyway, that would say you're wrong there. No. But unfortunately, many are not taught that grace is also the way through life. That part we didn't get taught. Not very well anyway. Nobody spent much time in that area. For centuries, the church has marginalized the gospel of grace. They've seen grace as the firing pin to get you to God. And they've used the rolling pin in their feeble attempt to keep you in God. But they've never seen grace as the underpin. Friends, grace is the underpin. Do you know what underpin means? It means something that strengthens, something that supports, like a pylon under a bridge. That is the underpin of the bridge. And we need this underpinning of grace for every minute and every moment of our lives in Christ. Now, when I first came to Christ, grace was the centerpiece of my purview, my horizon. That's all I could see. Honeymoon. Bees were buzzing on the inside of me. Flowers were blooming on the inside of me. And it may have been that way for you too. And then, well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ came along and put horse blinders on the body of Christ. Would you like to know what happens when you put blinders on a horse? Would you like to know what happens? Come on. You know what horse blinders are? Like this, right? The blinders reduce the horse's field of vision. Why would you do that to a horse? Because it helps the horse stay in his lane. It helps the horse stay focused. Blinders help the horse to stay on task when running races, when lugging loads, and when prancing in parades. And the church has come along and said, we're going to put blinders on you. Now, if the blinders were for Christ alone in his finished work of the cross, then fine, I get it, okay? But it wasn't, friends. Remember, grace was marginalized. Now we can't see grace at all because we got blinders on, right? Right? Certain church doctrines have unknowingly accomplished the same outcome. They have put the blinders of a law-centered gospel on their converts. And the Apostle Paul would say, that is no gospel at all. These blinders have reduced the field of vision so that believers cannot see the simplest of truths and so that believers cannot behold the beautiful, all-encompassing, awe-inspiring, exhilarating, illuminating, and liberating gospel of grace in the finished work of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Oh, they like the firing pin of grace. Uh, They like that part. And the church has become an expert with the rolling pin, flattening and shaping in each other's lives. You know how that works, right? Little flower, a little more leaven here. Brother, just flatten out your life, shape your life for you. But where is the underpin of grace? Where is it? Were these believers actually saved by the gospel of grace through faith? Of course they were. But then subsequently, the gospel was marginalized to make way for the performance-powered, determination-driven, self-effort-sustaining, Race running, load lugging, parade prancing, Moses merchandising, and field division reducing gospel, which is no gospel at all. Moses may have been the mouthpiece of the old covenant, but Jesus is the centerpiece of the new one, friends. Big difference. We see that truth in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 from the message paraphrase. Look at these words. So my dear Christian friends, companions, in following this call to the heights, take a good, hard look at Jesus. Oh, man, come on. Take a good, hard, take a good, long stare at Jesus. Take a good, hard look at Jesus. Look at what it says then. He's the centerpiece of everything we believe. I've been telling you that so far for the last 30 minutes. He's the centerpiece of everything we believe. We have sanctified him. We have allowed him to be the centerpiece of our vision. He is the centerpiece of everything we believe. Faithful in everything God gave him to do. Moses was also faithful. Look at these words. But Jesus gets far more honor. A builder is more valuable than a building any day. Every house has a builder, but the builder behind them all is God. Moses did a good job in God's house, but it was all servant work. Getting things ready for what was to come. Christ, as son, (laughs) is in charge of the house, friends moses is not the doorman friends moses is not the gatekeeper christ is in charge of the house friends moses served as the firing pin releasing the hebrews from the slavery of egypt with a bang all of them in one day i'd call that a bang wouldn't you that's a big bang friends He released them with a bang, served as a firing pin. And Moses skillfully used the rolling pin in the desert as he sat on the judgment seat, flattening their disputes. But Jesus and his gospel of grace is our underpin, okay? It's what strengthens us. It's what supports us. We have been transported into a brand new kingdom. It's a once-for-all firing. Our sins have been flattened to smithereens and taken away. Jesus is the centerpiece of everything we believe. He is the centerpiece forever, and he can never be marginalized. A marginalized centerpiece is nothing more than an oxymoron. That's all it is. Something can't be the centerpiece of your life and be marginalized at the same time. Do you see that? (laughs) We marginalize without even knowing we're doing it. Did you know that? Criticism is marginalizing somebody. Belittling somebody, you've marginalized them. Derogatory language and bullying are subtle examples of being marginalized. We marginalize people we disagree with because we fear that they will disrupt the ecosystem of our belief system. We marginalize the poor and the needy because... We realize the cost can get so great. We marginalize a sinner because we have bought into the ancient lie that somehow they're going to rub off on us and contaminate us. Friends, may I remind us today that Jesus hung out with sinners. All his disciples were sinners. Jesus marginalized no one. In fact, when it came down to the Last Supper, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me into the hands of, of angry sinners. And every one of his disciples asked if it was them. Don't you find that a little strange? Now, had Jesus of marginalized Judas throughout the ministry, and had Jesus been critical or belittling, picking on, bullying Judas, then the other disciples would have never asked the question, is it I? They would have immediately said, it's Judas, isn't it? Judas, we know who it is. But right to the very end, Jesus has been showing gentleness and love and honor and respect and faith and patience. Right to the very end. Jesus had opportunity, but he didn't marginalize even the poorest and wickedest of souls. That was Judas. Revealing the Father's goodness and restoring marginalized souls that's Jesus's heart that was his heart that's still his heart let me say it again revealing the father's goodness and then restoring marginalized souls that's the heart of my Jesus in Luke chapter 4 verses 14 through 19 we find these words and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding region And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place. In other words, he kept rolling the scroll, until he found the place that he wanted to read from because he knew the word. And he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year Of the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus intentionally read this section of the scroll of Isaiah? Because he wanted everyone to hear that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And he wanted everyone in the synagogue to know that he came for the marginalized. The poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. Those who had been reduced to begging from the sidelines. Friends, that was you, that was me, that was us, that was we. We were all poor, we were all captive at one time. We were all blind at one time, and we were all oppressed at one time. We were all marginalized, and Jesus came for us. For the first 14 years of my salvation, I marginalized grace. I treated grace as though it were Christmas decorations, bringing out grace for special occasions such as evangelism. Sir, you need God's grace. How many fingers are pointing back at me? I needed God's grace too. I already had it, but I didn't realize I needed it for every minute, every moment. The Apostle Paul established the church in Galatia during a missionary journey sometime around 48 A.D. That was 18 years after Jesus had been crucified and long before he had written any of his letters. So he's on missionary journeys before he has written anything that we're reading today. It was in Galatia. That he invested his blood, his sweat, his tears. It was in Galatia that he spent night after night, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, pouring into the Galatians, pouring in this gospel of grace. It was there that he would hear a knock maybe around midnight, one o'clock in the morning from one of those Galatians who couldn't sleep because Paul was disrupting their flora because all they had known was the law. and. Can you imagine what that conversation looked like, sounded like? Uh, Excuse me, Paul, I don't mean to bother you, but I mean, when you taught us today, I understood exactly what you said, but then I went home, and I tried to go to sleep, and I couldn't help but think about, that doesn't sound right, and I thought, maybe this can wait till morning, but it just wouldn't wait, Paul, and that's why I'm here. Can you go through that with me one more time, Paul? You know that kind of stuff was going on. You know how I know that's going on? Because that's happened in my own life. Knocks on the door in the middle of the night. Phone calls in the middle of the night. <laughs> I know what was going on here. It was absolutely going on there. It was there that Paul was establishing the finished work of Jesus Christ and he was unveiling the gospel of grace. Now, can you understand, can you appreciate how upsetting it would have been for Paul to learn months later from Ephesus or Corinth, wherever he was at, that his precious converts had been hoodwinked by the Judaizers and led back into legalism. Can you understand his frustration? Let me see if I can paint a picture in your heads this morning that will stimulate your disappointment and frustration glands, okay? So that you can somewhat empathize with Paul. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you were that great painter, Michelangelo, and that you had been commissioned by Pope Julius II to create a masterpiece of a painting on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. From the years 1508 to 1512, you worked relentlessly painting that 132-foot-long by 44-foot-wide ceiling with high Renaissance artwork. You risked your life atop of a 68-foot scaffolding for four years, you have stood on boards while craning your neck. Your wrists and arms have gone numb with carpal tunnel syndrome. But at last, it's complete. What a labor of love! The scaffolding is taken down, the floor is swept clean, all your paint brushes and painting supplies have been packed away. You stand in amazement, seven stories below your masterpiece, as you take in one last panoramic gaze at your beautiful, all-encompassing, all-inspiring, exhilarating, illuminating, and liberating artwork, and under your breath you say, it is finished. Did you see that in your own mind's eye? Now, you travel to another country because you have other missionary journeys to go on. And a few months later, you receive word that someone has broken into the Sistine Chapel and has painted graffiti all over your masterpiece. Let me ask you a question. Would your glands flood your body with the stress hormones of adrenaline and cortisol? Sure they would, wouldn't they? Now are you beginning to somewhat identify with how the Apostle Paul felt as he learned that his masterpiece converts had been sprayed with the graffiti of the Judaizers? I'm talking about the ones that taught that Galatians were obligated to observe circumcision and certain other prescriptions of the Mosaic law as their means to be right with God. Friends, the Judaizers' message used the firing pin and the rolling pin, but lacked grace as the underpin. They fitted the Galatians with horse blinders, which reduced their field of vision, and in doing so, they marginalized the gospel of grace. The Judaizers had reintroduced Moses while marginalizing the one with greater honor. I'm talking about Christ, the Son, in charge of the house. And the Apostle Paul, when he learned of the Judaizers' crusade to reintroduce Moses, he got out his papyrus paper and his bone-carved stylus, and he wrote the Galatians a letter. This is seven years later, friends. It was a forceful and passionate letter reminding the Galatians that a half-truth is a whole lie. Don't you listen to their rhetoric. The Galatians had not lost their salvation, but they had lost their footing. They had fallen from grace back into works. The Apostle Paul reminded them that it was Jesus' blood that had led them out of the institution and the constitution of the old covenant law and into the substitution of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We see my final scriptures in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1-5. through 5. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in galatia grace and peace to you from god our father and the lord jesus christ look at these words who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our god and father to whom be glory forever and ever amen the letter to the galatians was written like i said about seven years after Paul's first visit. And right out of the gate, as he writes this letter, Paul establishes his credentials. Why? Because the Judaizers had told the Galatians not to listen to Paul, because Paul was not one of the original 12 apostles. Don't listen to him. He has no credentials. So right out of the gate, Paul's establishing his credentials. I got what I got from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul declared himself an apostle sent by Jesus Christ and God the Father. And he reminded the Galatians why Jesus came. He came to give himself for their sins and to rescue them from the present evil age. Now, no Christian church would dare to argue the point that Jesus came to give himself for our sins. But unfortunately, they turned the faucet off too early. They put away the paintbrush before the ceiling is complete. They put horse blinders on their people so that the gospel of grace gets marginalized. Please note that the Apostle Paul wrote that Jesus came not only to forgive sins, but he also came to rescue them from the present evil age. He said that there. Did you know that it is not considered rescued until they are taken out of their dangerous and distressing situation? If I'm drowning out in the middle of a body of water, I am not rescued until I'm on shore. Do you see that? So what is Paul talking about? Did God take the Galatians out of their dangerous and distressing situation? No, he didn't do that then the evil that Paul wrote about must have been something different than just a crime-ridden world. And yes, that's right. And through Paul's words, he would bring the marginalized gospel of grace back into its full understanding. When Paul used that word evil, that word evil comes from the Greek word Poneros, ros, hurtful. That which is evil in consequence, but not character. So the apostle Paul is not attacking their character; he's attacking the consequence. That which is evil in influence, but not an evil individual. There's a difference, friends. Big difference. And then evil means full of labor, full of annoyances, full of hardships, full of toiling. Does this sound a little bit familiar? It should because that's the life that the schoolmaster and the taskmaster offered at one time. Paul was letting the Galatians know that Jesus came to rescue us. Come on. He came to rescue us from the annoying and toiling and laboring of trying to earn our right standing with God. That's why he used that word. It's probably not a good English word for us, but behind that word, poneros, means hurtful. He came to rescue us from the annoyances, from the toiling, from the working to get your identity. He came to unveil the gospel of grace to them. He used the words to rescue you from this present evil age As a reminder, it wasn't their character that was evil. It was their consequence. They were not evil as individuals. It was the influence of the Judaizers that was evil. Why were the Judaizers' influences and consequences evil? Because their message had marginalized the gospel of grace. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. Accentuating and articulating the case for grace begins with sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts. He must become the centerpiece of the gospel. Everything else is peripheral. The finished work of the cross invites all to the field. The 42 players... Get to come out too. It invites everyone to the field. No one is marginalized. The poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed, each receive the beautiful, all-encompassing, all-inspiring, exhilarating, illuminating, and liberating invitation to come to Christ. Grace is not only the way to life, but grace is also the way through life. Friends, no one goes through life without falling down. No one goes through life without getting cut. No one goes through life without being sick. But the Father has infused provision into the gospel of grace to accommodate every time we fall, every time we get hurt, and for every sickness, whether it be mental or physical. And no one goes through life without having been slandered or disparaged. It is in times like these that we can best demonstrate an unshakable faith, an unconditional love, and an unwavering patience. We respond with gentleness and respect. Our gracious response removes the stinger from the bee. Believers may walk away from the institution, that is the church, and they may walk away from the constitution, that is the old covenant law, But believers can never walk away from the substitution, and that is Christ. If I swallow a marble, (laughs) the marble goes with me. And if I put on Christ, Christ goes with me. For we are all children of God, and by faith in Jesus, we are baptized into Him. The law was our schoolmaster, and the law was our taskmaster. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster or the taskmaster. We are under grace, the master builder. Religion? Well, it's an expert at marginalizing the true gospel of grace. It inserts half truths which are no more than whole lies. Believers that sit under an old covenant prescription treat grace as less important than the law. But the writer of Hebrews declared that the builder is more valuable than the building. He wrote that every house has a builder, but the builder behind them all is God. Michelangelo, I think he did a fantastic job. I think he did a great job on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. But his work did not credit him with righteousness. In the absence of Christ, our high renaissance artwork is nothing more than graffiti. Moses did a good job in God's house, but it was all servant work, getting things ready for what was to come. Moses was faithful, but Jesus gets far more honor. Christ as Son is in charge of the house. You're the house, by the way. You're the mansion, by the way. He is the builder. He's in charge of the building. He's in charge of the mansion. He's in charge of the house. The church, well, she certainly taught us about the firing pin of grace, which brings us to Christ, for which I can say thank you so much. I'm very grateful for that. I am. But then religion put a rolling pin in our hands to flatten out our flesh and horse blinders around our eyes that reduced our field of vision so that believers could not see the simplest of truths. But where? Where is the underpin of grace? That's my question. Friends, the marginalized gospel of grace is falsely proclaimed through a performance-powered, determination-driven, self-effort-sustaining, load lugging race running parade prancing moses merchandising and field of vision reducing gospel and the apostle paul had a word for that you know what he would say he would say that is no gospel at all you have marginalized the true gospel of grace Father, we thank you so much. I know that's a long word, but it's a healthy word. We need to have a healthy viewpoint, a healthy opinion of who we are in Christ. I thank you, Father, that Jesus is my centerpiece. Everything else is peripheral. When a man sees that Jesus is the centerpiece of his life, then all the peripheral things will also come into play, will come into focus. I thank you, Father, that you've built in provision into the gospel of grace so that when we fall down, we can rise again. I thank you that you've built in provision that when we get sick, sometimes it's just in our emotions. It's a bad thought. It's a wayward mindset. We get sick in our emotions. We get sick in our bodies, whatever it may be. I thank you, Father, you've built in provision to help us in our time of need. I thank you, Father, that when we get cut in life, when people cut us with words and names and labels, that we can look to Christ, the centerpiece of the gospel, and we can say, that is my true identity in Christ. And we can just dismiss what they've said, but we do it with gentleness and respect, honoring people in love and faith, and in patience. Father, I'm very, very grateful. I'm very, very thankful that it's an inside job. You change us from the inside out. We have put on Christ. We have put on righteousness. And this righteousness will never fade, never chip, never spoil. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ who shed His precious blood to give us His very best. For which I just say, thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, GIVE to 833-632-1315 or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.